0: So imagine a world almost exactly like ours. Roughly the same history, same technology for the most part, just no plumbing. Okay, no sinks, no toilets, no showers, we just like never thought of it. Now imagine trying to convince the San Francisco Board of Supervisors that we have today to let you build an underground system of pipes, sewers, and treatment facilities for the purpose of your quote, tech bro fantasy, clean water. Oh man, the things they would accuse you of, what do you want to drown kids? Typical out-of-touch techies, too good for a river. I actually thought about this the other day in the shower. You know, plumbing is complex. It would take a lot, both in terms of resources and central planning, to restructure our city, the city we have today, for something like running water had we not already had it. You know, something we lived without for about 200,000 years, but today pretty much can't imagine not having. We did that. We built that. We once lived in a world that could build that. But today, in San Francisco, we can't even build an apartment building. In this episode, it is the big bad question because so many of the problems we're facing in this city and increasingly the whole country come down to this single issue. Housing. We don't have enough of it. We need more. People want to build more. Why can't we get this done? From Founders Fund, I'm Mike Solana, and this is Anatomy of Next. Asylum. San Francisco is broken in a lot of places, but none so obvious as housing. You know, it's actually pretty simple. There's not enough of it. This is the global capital of technology and a city with a rich history and a singular beauty. On the hills, by the bay, on that jagged coast beneath the redwoods, before the vineyards and the valleys of Napa, the snow-capped mountains. It's no surprise the demand to live here is massive. And with that demand, of course, it's more expensive than other places in the country. But demand brings opportunity as well an extraordinary incentive to build so what's really surprising here is even with this demand this insane demand we can't do that humans are biased to believe what they're experiencing is normal maybe a three-hour round-trip commute is normal maybe a multi-million dollar home that needs to be purchased in cash torn down and rebuilt before you can even live in it is normal maybe a board of land-owning elected politicians asserting plainly their belief that this isn't really a problem because most of the people in this city aren't really San Franciscans is normal, but probably not. Probably, we should fix this. By 2018, almost 50% of Bay Area residents considered leaving the region, citing the cost of housing as their greatest concern. The ratio of new jobs to housing units, 3.5 to one. The median rent on a one-bedroom apartment, about $3,700 a month. San Francisco is an anomaly, Something Keith Boy, a partner at Founders Fund, realized early on when he founded a company called Open Door. One of the reasons I was so excited to talk about this today is, I mean, this season of Anatomy of Next, we are looking at every aspect of San Francisco, really, the sort of like crumbling, dying city, it feels like, and trying to understand what it is that's happening here and then how do we fix it? And one of the key components here is real estate. People can't buy a house. And I thought, wow, you know, open door everyone is from San Francisco. You choose specifically not to be in San Francisco. And you once told me that the reason was because it was just such an atypical market. So I thought like who better than than you to talk about what, what are the qualities that make San Francisco such a different place? And first yeah. I mean that you characterize that as, as as true as like you, you did not start here because of those reasons. No,
1: we launched the company in Phoenix, which is the fifth largest city in the US, and we intentionally avoided the San Francisco Bay Area. In fact, we still do. So we have, we're live in about 22 U.S. cities currently. So Open Door is thriving in all of these cities, and we still haven't come to the Bay Area. The reason why is the Bay Area is incredibly anomalous uh, from a real estate perspective. So let me give you some stats. The average time to sell your house in the United States is 84 days. That's from time you list to time you close. In the Bay Area, it's 24 to 27 days. The average Median price of a home in the US, and this is going to shock your Bay Area listeners, is $234,000, the median home. So in the Bay Area, it's over a million dollars. So roughly 5x the national average. So all of these are just incredibly different, you know, sort of problems. So the need for liquidity in the Bay Area just doesn't exist. Sellers in the United States do not cannot easily sell their home they literally have to list on a vertical version of craigslist wait 84 days and then at the end of 84 days by the way 17 percent of transactions don't close in the bay area you get an all-cash offer in 20 days it's not that hard to sell your house you it's just millions a, of dollars you, you put up a sign and people show up
0: so you we fight for it and yeah pay more and than you ask pay more yeah
1: so basically realized that our value proposition wasn't really needed in the short term in the bay area but then you can you know sort of dive into why is that true? Why is the median home in the United States $234,000? Why is it a million dollars here? Why why does sellers, why does supply and demand mismatch in the Bay Area versus in the United States where it's more balanced? So in any event, we've consciously skipped the Bay Area.
0: Yeah, so let's get into some of these reasons why. I mean, what is it about San Francisco that makes the real estate situation here just so different?
1: There's several contributing factors. One is simply we just don't build enough housing. I mean, supply and demand works. If there's a lot of people who want to live in a city because there's high paying, attractive jobs that change the world, or the city's beautiful, or the weather's attractive, there's going to be people that want to live there. And the way you keep pricing to be affordable is you build supply to match demand. Uh, Seattle's run an experiment in the last few years. It actually has a lot of common characteristics with the Bay Area in terms of the type of tech professionals, the type of companies that are built there. And they've just built a lot of supply. And all the real estate, you know, the price has actually gone down. The Bay Area for a variety of reasons just doesn't build any inventory. They went through basically like five years we built nothing. We now build a couple thousand a year when we should be building like twenty thousand a year units. And that obviously the price of an asset is just gonna go up when there's more demand than supply.
0: We're gonna bring Keith back in a little later in the episode. And I just I really can't overstate how bad this problem is. The cost of living in San Francisco is catastrophically high. We are quickly bifurcating into a city of you know, destitute drug addicts and billionaires and no one else. There's going to be a future for the city. We have to bring the cost of living down, but to do that, we're going to have to talk about our local government because it's unique. It is incredibly powerful and no one who lives here actually seems to understand how it works. So let's just start right there. Who is actually in charge?
2: My name is Trisha Dhani, and I am a City Hall reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. I cover all 11 of the members of the Board of Supervisors.
0: Trisha's been doing some fantastic work on that beat, covering all 11 of our supervisors. A near all-powerful cabal of local landowners who almost no one in the city seems to know anything about. You know, I've been living here almost a decade, and didn't know almost anything about them myself until a couple years ago. Trisha gave me a lay of the land. I moved to San Francisco, like, almost 10 years ago now. The moment you get here, first of all, it's an amazing city, I love mm-hmm. this city. It's like the culture, and the weird geography, the buildings, like, the weather is bizarre, it's magical, it's got this history, but also it has like these pretty intense, <laughs> systemic problems, yes. from the crime to the homelessness to actual poop on the streets, like, it's pretty apparent. And you can't help but think like why is this happening like who is responsible for this and that is usually where i think a lot of people stop and they just complain about it and yell about it on twitter or with each other and it's like this city's terrible but what most people don't even realize is that we have a board of supervisors and that this is our legislative body and that they are actually tremendously empowered and i was hoping that you could just kind of walk us through that like why don't we just start right there you cover this stuff every day you cover the actual like government.
2: Mm-hmm. The, every Tuesday, the board meeting, sometimes we're here till 10 p.m. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I would love it if you could just explain what exactly is the structure of the San Francisco government? How does stuff get done here?
2: Yeah. So just by way of background, so I moved here about Three years ago at this point and I started covering business at the Chronicle when I first got here and I also didn't really know, even though I was at the San Francisco Chronicle, I also didn't really know the power that the Board of Supervisors holds. And when I moved to City Hall, I mean, I was just like completely blown away by how much power these 11 people have. You know just at its most basic level san francisco is split into 11 districts and each district has its own supervisor so for example i live or we both live in district 5 yep. so i live in hayes valley so you said you live in the Haight. our district 5 supervisor is supervisor valley brown
0: editor's note she is not or not anymore after i interviewed trisha a guy named dean preston ran to her left or far far literally marxist left literally sharing content on Twitter along the lines of socializing all aspects of industry and society left, and he won the seat.
2: These 11 supervisors, they are the ones who craft policy, they hold meetings every single Tuesday where they vote on all of these policies, and they're really the ones who are on the ground in the city. The reason that we have district representatives is that so the voices of the neighborhoods get elevated into City Hall rather than other cities have like city councilors at large where they're just elected
0: and they represent sort of everything they represent
2: everywhere i believe in in boston where i lived before coming to san francisco they have a few district representatives but then they have at large city council members but here it's all district wide but it does create this interesting dynamic where you do have people who are They're supposed to represent neighborhoods like us, Hayes Valley, and the Hate, but they also have to deal with citywide concerns. You know, sometimes you do see a little bit of tension there where something proposed for a neighborhood that maybe the neighbors don't like. An example is a homeless shelter that was recently proposed for the Embarcadero. The neighbors didn't like that, but it's what's better for the city. Right. So then you see the supervisors get into this weird position there. That's a long way of saying. What exactly <laughs>
0: does a mayor have to do with any of this? Mm-hmm. So it's like you have you have the board of supervisors. They're elected one from each district in the city, 11, mm-hmm. 11 supervisors, 11 districts. They're crafting policy, legislation. And then what is the mayor's purpose, yeah.
2: job? So we are a city that has something called a strong mayor. That means that she is also able to propose policy for the Board of Supervisors. She's also given veto power. Um, So she can
0: say no to anything? She can
2: say no to things that have eight or less votes on it. That's called a supermajority, a supermajority on on the board. So as long as legislation doesn't have a supermajority, she doesn't like it, she can overturn it. But what's interesting about this new board is that they often are able to get to a supermajority. So in San Francisco, everyone is Democrat. Yes. It's such a blue city, that <laughs> you know, the sky is blue. So is San Francisco. But the divisions here come between the progressives and the moderates.
0: M- moderates by like San Francisco's standards. By San Francisco's standards.
2: Standard. So what the divisions like really come down to, progressives tend to push for more higher levels of affordable housing where the moderates support all types of housing.
0: So, the San Francisco supervisors pass ordinances, resolutions, and budgets. They determine the shape of almost every piece of our city's critical infrastructure. If they wanted to get rid of prohibitive requirements on building homes, oversee the construction of temporary shelter for the city's homeless, they could. Now, while they haven't focused on that, any of that, they have accomplished a handful of other things. And you might be aware of a few of them, as they are infamously concentrated in the realm of banning stuff that people like. So e-cigarettes and vapes, various types of shopping bags, most recently plastic straws, as well as the little plastic cocktail swords that bartenders in other cities stick inside a fruit. They've banned scooters, electric bikes, and more on that, the nonsense our local politicians are currently focused on in an episode a little later this season. But on housing, you know, political mechanics of the city considered, we aren't really suffering from a structural problem in the shape of our politics. You know, it's not that our politicians don't have the power to do anything. They are empowered to change things. They're just not doing it. They're literally choosing every single day not to do it. And before we get into why, I want to just quickly say that this is not normal. Housing is absolutely an issue for many cities in the U.S. And most of them are suffering from fairly similar kinds of dysfunction. But this dysfunction is by no means innate to the concept of city governance. Okay, this is not something that just naturally happens. That has to happen. I want to just quickly take you on a trip to a parallel, bizarro-world version of San Francisco, where, actually, this housing stuff just works.
2: One ticket to Tokyo, please.
0: I reached out to River Davis, a reporter out of the Tokyo Bureau of the Wall Street Journal. She wrote a piece about housing that blew my mind. It seemed frankly unbelievable. Literally, I went into this expecting to be let down. I I truly believed that I was missing something. Tokyo is one of the most desirable places to live in the world. Probably one of the three or four most important cities on the planet. Middle-class people were buying homes there. How was that possible?
3: So I agree, it is also a story of supply and demand here as well. But the difference in Japan is that Supply is quite a lot higher. The US's population is more than double Japan's, but if you look at the number of new housing starts every year, both are about a million per year. If you're looking at Japan, you have to differentiate between rural Japan and Tokyo. In rural Japan, actually a colleague of mine just wrote an article about how there's millions of empty houses that they are literally giving away to people for free because Everyone is moving to Tokyo and the suburbs are aging very quickly. You're left with a bunch of empty houses that people are literally giving away for free or paying people to come move into in some cases. But then if you look specifically at Tokyo, this is a different story because the population in Tokyo is actually growing. It has been growing for Decades because people are moving in from other prefectures to come live in the capital. But housing is growing here as well. So it's not facing the same sort of empty house problem. It's just the rate that houses are built here are very quick.
0: This is crazy to me. I had no idea that the housing, I I had no idea they were giving houses away in the suburbs. I guess I, I do understand that on some level, it's a simple at the high level as just like, we have to just build more housing. Right. I mean, people here say that too. We get, we have a lot of, it's like the whole Yimby movement is yes. In my backyard. It's like, we have to just build, we have to build every kind of housing we can. Anytime it's on like a, a question of like, should we build this housing or that housing? It's like, yes to both of them. Yes. And yes. Like we need more, but we can't manage it. We can't manage it politically. I'm wondering, perhaps, are there structural differences in our governments? Is there something that's just like, is it just easier to build in Japan? Like, can NIMBY-ish thinking, even if it exists, not actually affect building?
3: Yeah, you definitely see a relative lack of NIMBYism in Japan. There are definitely cultural elements to that, but what the current condition was informed by was actually in the 80s in Japan, there's a huge spike in housing prices, and there's a lot of pressure put on the government to sort of relax regulations put on companies trying to build housing complexes. What came out of this price hike in houses was a package of policies in the 90s and early 2000s that made it much easier to build very tall and dense buildings for housing. I mean, you get everything from they cut out public space and like corridors from the measurements of apartment buildings, allowing people to build wider. And actually, private entities were given permission to authorize building projects. That sped things up because local governments didn't get stopped up with applications for building houses. So I guess the most known piece of legislation that came out of that, was the 2002 Urban Renaissance Law. That really shifted regulation from a local level to a national level. What that did was the NIMBY movement doesn't exactly have the capacity to move beyond the local level to the national level, because a lot of times they're not heard out.
0: Interesting. So there are these enormous differences locally, region to region, even in America. I mean, Seattle is much better at building housing than San Francisco, and it does seem to come down to local regulations. So this would just sort of turn that on its head. If it's a national problem, then Japan just sort of came in top down and was like, no, no matter where you are, these are the housing rules and they're all deregulated and we're going to build lots of housing everywhere. So this is national. All across the country, people are able to build housing. There's, There's just not as many barriers to it.
3: Yeah, because it's decided on a national level, you see this widespread environment that I talked to actually two of the top housing construction companies in Japan for my reporting on this article. And they said that since this Sort of reformation of housing policy that was enacted, it's been a lot easier to build, especially in building these really tall, like skyscraper apartment complexes that just have so much housing. They sort of demolish the old building that was in that place and then build a higher building.
0: You alluded a moment ago to there are some cultural differences. Maybe they're not that important, but they're still somewhat notable. Like, what are the differences there and how people think about housing in Japan as as opposed to here, just separate from the politics?
3: I think that the sense that you get here is that people's right to the land that they own is very strong. So if you want to tear down an old house and turn it into an apartment complex, your neighbors won't really be too vocal and loud about it. Also... (laughs) I can speak from personal experience, actually. Next to my old apartment building, I mean, a massive like 32-story apartment complex went up and there was no movement from the neighbors about noise or anything. And the projects actually go up really fast. In the construction industry in Japan, although things have been changing a little bit recently, construction workers work late into the night. They only get Sundays off. So you see these massive projects go up remarkably
0: quickly. That's so interesting what you just said about property rights having more cultural cachet in Japan than in America. America has this Mm. reputation, this kind of like veneer of being strong on property. But at the local level, we have all of these weird rules. It's not very libertarian. And I guess Japan also has this sort of reputation as being more collectively oriented.
3: I would say that the, I mean, I'm speaking from personal experience growing up between the two countries. The movement and the ability to organize and protest is much stronger in the US than in Japan.
0: Is it just the ability to do it or is it the will to do it?
3: Yeah, I would say the will actually is a better word.
0: That's. Cr- I mean, I know this is somewhat off of the reporting now, but what do you think that is? Why is it maybe that people here are so ready to protest building and people in Japan are not?
3: I would say that Japan is much more private society. There's not like these vocal protests and you wouldn't necessarily get a group of your neighbors together to go swarm like the city office to get this apartment shut down. (laughs) If there are protests, it's kept on like the low here. And then as I said earlier, because all of this policy decision shifted to the national government, in some cases people probably feel like their voice isn't necessarily going to be conveyed since it's right. not the decision of the municipality. Right. Necessarily. They, like
0: where are they going to go in protest? It's actually just much harder. You have yeah. a even longer distance to go. Like yeah, Literally, you have yeah. to go like get in a you're bus, gonna... I guess, and <laughs> go to the Capitol. Really yeah, crazy. you're not going
3: to show up at the Congress and say, stop this neighbor from <laughs> no. building his house. <laughs> uh huh.
0: If you were to offer me some advice as a San Franciscan who would like to see housing costs plummet, And see a rise in affordable housing in the way that we've seen all across Japan. What are your prescriptions? What would you say we might be able to learn from Japan?
3: Well, I think you can definitely see the benefits of deregulation of housing policy in Tokyo specifically. So, if San Francisco was perhaps to shift some more of the policies to a national level, then that could stop some of the really strict regulations that are put down that have led to issues like gentrification. But it comes with its pros and cons because, of course, with taller buildings, you get problems with access to sunlight. And there have been a number of accidents in Tokyo (laughs) with, you know, falling construction materials and noise for neighbors. So... It's definitely, it has its pros and cons.
0: You've mentioned deregulation a handful of times in in the context of Japan. They deregulated things we were able to to build after that. What were the sort of regulations that they got rid of? Like, what are the kinds of things that they couldn't do before that now they can do?
3: So as I said a little bit before, they put in a lot of new rules of exceptions. So if you're building an apartment building, you no longer have to factor in the corridor space, for example, or the public space around the apartment building. So it allows companies to build denser. And also regulations were taken back on the height of buildings. So you're allowed to build buildings much higher. And that's really led to a boom of massive apartment buildings being built and condos in Tokyo. And there was new zoning laws put in as well. So in commercial land, you can build whatever you want in Japan. And so a lot of the construction and housing that has gone up has been in industrial zones, sort of closer to the bay. Um, There's a massive housing project going on there right now, like 24 buildings, 5,000 some apartments and condos going up called Harumi Flag. It's actually going to be the Olympic Village. And then after that, going on the market. And that was built on industrial land out by the bay that the government has allowed these companies to build on now. Part of sort of this whole movement of deregulation. And everyone I spoke to about these apartment complexes say that they'll come in relatively low compared to market prices because it's just such a massive amount of supply put in on an already saturated area of Tokyo.
0: I guess one kind of scary thing to think about here when we talk about building taller buildings, is earthquakes. But of course, Japan is earthquake prone as San Francisco, probably more so, it seems that there are worse earthquakes, yeah. there have been like worse earthquakes there, at least recently. Do people think about that at all? I mean, the, you're building these massive buildings in Tokyo. And how do people think about that?
3: Definitely. That's a good point. So when you're looking at regulations, there are some pretty rigid regulations that are updated in terms of earthquakes. And so in Japan, you actually see a really rapid teardown rate. So in the US, where a house may last you know 60 years in japan within like two decades a house depreciates to zero
0: whoa
3: yeah so it's a huge turnover rate what is what causes that
0: the depreciation
3: so there's a cultural element like people do not want to buy a second hand house like you would in the u.s because it's a mentality of i don't want to inherit anyone else's problems i want to start fresh if i'm buying a house So that's part of it. And then the second part is earthquake regulation. So you want the building that you're in to have the newest and latest in sort of earthquake resilience technology.
0: That's so interesting because the sort of mentality of wanting the newer model, this is something I've talked to with other folks in different contexts about housing, where it was just, why is it that we're so excited about the new iPhone? We want to get the new one, the next one, the new computer, whatever. But with housing, it's almost like, especially in San Francisco, I'm speaking to you right now from an Edwardian. It's like, we want to live in old buildings. I don't know what it is, but we're (laughs) obsessed with old buildings.
3: Yeah, and that's why you see, I think, the lifespan of a house in the U.S. is more like 60 years. Yeah. That's like three times what it is in Japan. One other interesting factor in Japan in terms of cheap housing is actually prefabricated homes. So the director from Daiwa House, one of the largest housing companies in Japan, estimated that something like 20% of homes in Japan today are actually prefabricated. And that has an effect on bringing housing prices down because it's a lot cheaper to build and the materials are a lot cheaper than you would see building a house from scratch. And uh, he also sees that trend continuing as Japan ages and there's less and less construction workers actually.
0: It does really just seem like people in Japan seem to think about their house differently than we do here. The prefab thing seems like something that people here would find maybe cheap or something. Like we are expected to put tons of money into our housing. Maybe that's the weird thing. It's like we actually, in some weird way, want to spend a lot of money on our houses.
3: Yeah, I think in the US there's a lot more diversity in the design of the house. You want a house that has some history and character to it, but... In Japan, there seems to be more of a preference for sort of the latest technologies, making sure it's very earthquake resilient and also not inheriting any of the problems of the previous occupant.
0: So is that it? I mean, we know how to lower the cost of housing. Japan did it. It's done. There it is. You know, look at it. And Americans are not dumb. You know, we're not incapable. Is this just the world we want to live in?
4: My name name's I Cutler. I am a partner at Initialized Capital. We're an early stage venture firm in the Soma District of San Francisco. Before that, I was a journalist for 10 years and I am also a Bay Area native. I wrote a really long piece in 2014 that kind of took off and helped kickstart a movement among a lot of different types of people just to be a voice for more housing where the conversation literally just hadn't been that way for several decades.
0: I asked Kimai to come on the show to talk about this, just the piece, you know, her insights into the housing crisis, why it's happening, how we might fix it. And we did talk about all of that, but we also got into something I hadn't really thought much about. Could there possibly be something in the way we think about property? And as a country now, you know, not just San Franciscans, that is in some way responsible for our housing crisis or just, you know, some very big part of what's going on.
4: In the United States, it's not hard to see or understand that homeownership is a core cultural value of American society. And so homeownership isn't just this visual ideal of a home and a fence and a yard and whatnot. It's also the way that this country has encouraged its citizens to store and generate wealth. Right? Yeah, like legally. It, legally. And it's really, really supported at literally every level of government, from the 30-year fixed-rate mortgage, which is backed by the government, the GSEs like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, to the property tax benefits we practice at the state level, to the mortgage interest deduction, to local zoning laws. All of this is kind of geared towards enhancing and supporting homeownership among Americans. You know, this isn't just like a new concept. It's a concept that's rooted in hundreds and hundreds of years of history. And it dates back to the way that the English perceived and kind of geared their economy around land ownership like hundreds of years ago. So if you think back to like an agrarian era, if you think back hundreds and hundreds of years ago, you know, the way that families generated and maintain their wealth is they would work their land. You know, you would enclose land, and if you worked harder, and you farmed it better and developed more ingenious techniques to get more yield out of it, you would have higher revenue from that land. We kind of imported that model into the American colonies. A lot of the initial colonies, which were, you know, chartered by the English, they sold off land in order to sustain their own financial situation. And that kind of, like, seeded this concept in the United States, and for you know, 100 plus years, this agrarian model paired with land ownership and strong property rights is just like was a key part of both the American colonial existence and then the revolutionary period. But if you fast forward to the industrial period, things start to change, the population and where it lives starts to change, and people start to move to cities and concentrate in cities. And this creates a number of different changes in the urban environment, we create our first ever class of commuters. Before people weren't commuting, they were, you'd wake up, you'd live on your farm, you'd work on your farm, you would wake up where you worked. With the shift towards industrial urban production, folks families would live in buildings or even in, you know, tenements like New York style, and then commute to factories that they didn't own, that they would work in with their hourly wages. And that kind of severed that traditional relationship between land ownership, wealth creation, and then, you know, where you worked. That period continued for many, many decades, and it created a lot of dislocation and discomfort in American society. And I think we saw that through the the Gilded Age of the late 19th century and then through the Great Depression. In the, the 1940s or the 1930s and 40s, when we're going through the Great Depression, we had a president in Franklin Delano Roosevelt who came from a very genteel family that also owned land in upstate New York and who split his childhood between the city and between this agrarian kind of rural area of upstate New York. And he was trying to think of ways to help Americans basically have more economic security, like what kind of programs would work. And he had a distaste for cities. He preferred the open air and the open natural environment. During the crisis of the Great Depression, you had... You know, massive economic dislocation. But at the same time, you also had new technology, the personal automobile. And so if you could kind of like take the technology of the car, and then you could have a massive public investment program around infrastructure that would enable the usage of that car. And then if you hearkened back to this American ideal, of property ownership, if you put all those things together, like maybe there was a way that you could kind of re-engineer a type of home ownership that would give American families a way to have economic security when their wage labor wasn't always going to be certain throughout the course of their life. Right. This
0: became the new vision of the American dream with the white picket fence and the American flag outside. And yeah,
4: but I would caution, if you look at the phrase American dream, it didn't become commonly associated with real estate until many decades later. The original phrase, which became popularized in the 1930s, has to do with character and values. It has nothing to do with real estate.
0: I remember my grandma talked about the American yeah. dream quite a bit. She's from Spain. And it's like yeah. the idea that you could come here and become something and do something. Yeah. But the, the white picket fence thing, yeah, that's that it's feels, later. that's new.
4: That's that's like a couple decades later. That's mm-hmm. like 70s and the 80s. Yeah. But he figures out this way. He actually gives this speech called the Commonwealth Club speech. And I don't want to say it's in 1932. It's actually in San Francisco. He comes to San Francisco itself. and uh-huh. He kind of gives a sneak peek of what his larger program is going to be around creating all these different agencies to sustain and restart the mortgage market and the housing market in the United States. But suffice to say... You know, it's his presidency that starts kind of the ball rolling on mass homeownership in America. For a long time, that model around a lot of highly productive metro areas, it worked in part because we had the land supply. So we could take land in the immediate Bay Area, and California had large contiguous tracts of land because, remember, it was under Spanish colonial rule. So it had large estates that could be converted into suburban tract home developments. And that model worked for 30 or 40 years.
0: And now we're approaching the problem of lots of people, no more land to build houses on. and certainly no more safe land to build houses on in California. We have to build up and we have a bunch of individual owners who don't want to let that happen.
4: The 1970s is when these rules and regulations, protections, and tax benefits start showing up towards homeowners and property owners in the region. And it coincides with the time that we run out of flat, buildable land. There is a lot of open space in the Bay Area. It would be possible to build out there, but it's just more complicated on hilly terrain. It's more expensive to build on hilly terrain. It's also, there's also like fire risk and stuff like well, that. Well, also, so I mean, wouldn't that. it be
0: great to start thinking about how to build expecting there to be more growth? I yeah. mean, we, we know that this is a problem. We know that it's going to continue to be a problem. A healthy society, a healthy civilization is growing also in yeah. population. Like, why not bake that into the concept? So separate from the culture stuff, you know, the way we think about property and housing and tabling our board of supervisors for a minute. So let's just imagine, okay, a world where our politicians both consider affordable housing a real problem and are genuinely attempting to address it. If by some miracle you do get to build, if the city allows you to build and you begin the construction process, that cost, the cost of construction is close to prohibitive.
4: San Francisco has the highest cost of construction now in the entire United States. That is the product of many different factors. I think number one when you talk to any GCs like the availability of labor, you know, our our labor pool is regional. You know, you might think that building a unit in Oakland is going to be that much cheaper than it is in San Francisco. And the reality is it's only, you know, slightly cheaper, maybe like $100,000 a unit cheaper. And that's because we're pulling from the same labor pool. Even a single notable project like Apple's headquarters or the Bay Terminal, that does have a meaningful effect on the labor supply that individual GCs can feel.
0: Just because we have s- it's so small to begin with.
4: Yeah, it's it's a small labor pool and, you know, something happened in our larger labor market over the last one or two decades which is you know construction market is cyclical market based housing pencils at certain points in the cycle, and then it doesn't pencil in other parts of the cycle. So for part of the cycle, when you have land values starting at the lower end, and then the expectation of growing rents, developers can attract financing at that point. But when you're at closer to where investors might perceive you at the top of the cycle, where land values are expensive, and also construction is really expensive, then it's harder to secure financing. We're at a point in the cycle where it's harder to secure financing. More broadly speaking, in the last financial crisis, a lot of really experienced construction labor left the market after the last cycle crash. And we just, you know, our unions didn't adequately replace them. There's a lot of different reasons. Part of it might be, you know, the trades, you know, they're not marketed as prestigious, stable jobs. If you talk to any, it's just really hard to recruit.
0: It seems like if there was a market for building things, there would be a labor pool, right? Like there would be a reason to be here. Is is the reason that we don't have enough construction workers just because we can't build things?
4: I mean, I would say part of it is are the trades themselves actually recruiting and retaining enough talent? And then the second part is the cyclicality is pretty hard. You're entering a profession where there's going to be a lot of work at certain points in the cycle and then not a lot of work at other points in the cycle. And so I think there is a role to play for counter cyclical financial sources, particularly around affordable housing that might be able to sustain labor demand through the down parts of the cycle so that we don't hemorrhage out a bunch of workers and lose them in the next cycle
0: right so it's like while things are booming which would be really immediately if we were allowed to build in san francisco you could imagine that like just there would be so many opportunities to build so some people want to be like creating new high rises and whatnot once that boom ends you're saying that the government comes in and says okay well we're gonna we're going to build all these new projects in the interim until the next.
4: Yeah, if we can get them financed. I mean, I think that's what, you know, Mayor London Breed um, announced a half a billion dollar affordable housing bond today. It follows on a 2014 $300 million dollar housing bond. And that's an important way that we can both finance below market rate housing for different income segments. That can go to nonprofit developers who then can acquire land or get projects going in, in the down cycle when it might be harder for. Well, it sounds like project. that would
0: be really awesome in a future world where. We were in a bust cycle. Right now, we can't even... I mean, money doesn't seem to be the problem, right? It's like people have lots of money and they can't build things here. I think we actually do have the will to go through all of that right now in San yeah. Francisco. People want to do it. People, are, it's, It is hard. It is expensive. But people are willing to buy a house and knock it down and build something that's like three times higher or buy 10 of them and knock it down and build a skyscraper. I mean, people want to do that right now. We can't. I think it has to do with our board of supervisors. It has to do with all these different committees. Like, can you kind of navigate us through the kind of political roadblock to building housing in San Francisco? What is that? Who are the parties responsible? How does all that work?
4: Yeah. So this goes back again into that same time period. If you go back into the seventies, San Francisco at that time, it's a very different place. It's the San Francisco of Jim Jones. It's the San Francisco of Harvey Milk being assassinated. It's the San Francisco of the Zodiac killer. It, it's a time when you know San Francisco, like many other American cities, has been historically disinvested by the American federal government and in incenting like a lot of white middle class families to leave, suburbanize, and take their wealth. And so cities at that period are experiencing decaying infrastructure and blight. Things are falling apart. Public systems aren't great, and you start to have first wave gentrifiers come back in and take advantage of this price discrepancy between the urban core and then the first suburban ring. The politics and the racial politics of this are are interesting. I mean, it's before my time, so it's hard for me to fully kind of understand it. But you can see that in the 70s, like some of the choices that are being made specifically in that context, you could see how they might make sense. Like some of these neighborhoods have experienced really devastating federal urban renewal projects where entire blocks are destroyed. Neighborhoods that housing like families of color and then big federal housing projects are developed on them. There's a plan to like build freeways through the city, which never comes to fruition. You can see how the residents here start to develop a distrust of these kind of large modernist top-down imposed plans and regimes. And so they start organizing and building alliances with each other and building these community and neighborhood groups. As the federal government also disinvests in public housing, a number of non-profit development organizations start to pop up neighborhood by neighborhood. You know, they become part of a political class within the city that 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 wants to mediate and kind of democratize the entire planning process.
0: I mean, I think I'm going to, I don't know how you're going to feel about this one, but I saw an interesting tweet the other day that said, the conservative take on immigration is our country is full and the liberal take is our city is full. <laughs> all of these neighborhoods, I mean, they're liberal people, but they're saying like there's no room for anybody else yeah. in here.
4: One can see the commonalities between those, those attitudes.
0: What we certainly have at the end of the day is just this like crazy nest of committees and councils and voting um, and all of it is amounted to the, just what we can't, there is no real top-down central planning anymore that's possible.
4: Well, San Francisco has long valued the process over the outcome. I would also like say the Bay Area is 101 municipalities and nine counties, and it never formed a strong regional body with teeth the way that like New York had an annexation in 1898 and all five boroughs are in a single city, or LA mm-hmm. annexed San-, San Fernando Valley. There's not a regional body strongly coordinating a lot of what's happening in the region.
0: The absence of a strong political authority for the entire Bay Area. Not just a mayor and a board of narrow minded supervisors thinking about a seven mile by seven mile slice of the Bay Area, but the whole metropolitan region. A political entity actually incentivized to make the region work is something worth keeping in mind. But that's a huge political problem to tackle, and there's still a lot of low hanging fruit. You know, first, we're not quite done with construction here. Kim I brought up labor pools, financing, the cyclical nature of construction in the market, all of which is really important. But I really think so much of this is just about policy. Kim I explained a bit about why our local housing policies exist, but I want to dig more into what they actually are, and more importantly, what they should be. So, I did not just interview Keith Raboy because he's a partner at Founders Fund and a co-founder of Open Door. He also rebuilt a house here, and he is a really good lawyer. He had a bunch of thoughts on construction, housing, and policy. We talked about local environmental regulations. We talked all about the planning department, neighborhood disputes, and then we got into prescriptions. How do we fix this?
1: Cost to build per square foot in the, the Bay Area is probably 2x where, where, where it is the rest of the United States. So that just means that even if the cost of the land were more affordable and attractive, you're still going to have a house that roughly costs 2x what any other house is going to cost. And you have to fix that the third thing though is the regulatory environment or the political environment or the constraints on building which is taking land and turning it into productive use if you walk around the bay area there's plenty of land here there's plenty of vacant lots there's like old gas stations there's parks drive yep. down drive <laughs> down 280 or go to Glen park canyon which is somewhat where near i live there's infinite space to build houses we've just chosen politically not to for environmental reasons, for views, historical reasons. But it's not like, this is not like Japan or not like Hong Kong or even New York City where there's actually a shortage of real estate. There's infinite real estate. We're, we're in the Presidio right now. There's basically no housing. <laughs> like when the, I'm looking out my window and there's no housing in sight. And That's a conscious decision to value other things over than the cost of living. And at some point that may change, but it's going to take a political
0: movement to overcome that let's drill down a little bit into the cost of building what are the factors there
1: well in, in in california as a whole so this is the whole state but compared to other states it's quite rare the amount of environmental regulation is insane so the amount of sort of reviews and processes you have to go through and delays and delays cost money when, like when you own a piece of property you're paying debt every day you're servicing debt every day so the longer it takes to build something get it occupied and lease occupied or or leased Basically, someone's bearing that cost every single day. So we have all kinds of environmental reviews that just don't exist in the rest of America. Secondly, the ability for people to interfere, the way zoning in San Francisco particularly works, this isn't quite as true in the rest of the Bay Area, is there's enough discretionary power that any of your neighbors have that they can either stop or slow down your project infinitely. And that again, translates to real money. And it either either actually prevents projects from being started up front because they know and are fact, people are factoring in the potential for this, or it makes projects uneconomical that would otherwise be very economical. So here we allow the planning department to veto things. So for example, you may have a part of the city that's zoned for 40-foot heights. If you try to build something that's even 15 feet, it's possible for your neighbors to interfere, which is just incredibly shocking. Typically, the way the United States zoning works is there's generally agreed upon rules. And as long as you're conforming to those rules, you basically have the right to sort of build within those constraints. And yes, if you need what's called a variance, yes, there's a political process to get a variance. Here, it works the opposite way that even if with even when you're working within the generally agreed upon principles, neighbors can still interfere with you. And the planning department and the government here is willing to you know, tolerate those objections to the generally accepted principles.
0: Now, I hate to provoke, but it sounds almost as if this is like a libertarian's dream.
1: Uh, it's the opposite. So I mean, Houston would be the libertarian dream. So Houston's one of the largest cities in the United States. Basically, there's no zoning. You can use land for whatever purpose you want. Seems to be a pretty functional city. Actually, last time I looked, it's very functional and the cost of living. So I live there as a law clerk. When I was a law clerk, I earned $34,000, $34,563. And I lived in this palatial apartment that I'd be thrilled to live in in the Bay Area (laughs) because I could afford it. And that would be impossible to live on that kind of salary in the Bay Area.
0: I guess what I'm saying is in San Francisco, it's impossible for even the government to build things. People have, it's just really serious, eminent domain, I guess protections here, it feels like. But it, it, maybe it's not that. It's just this this ability to interfere with what other people are doing on their property. Yeah, that, the, that the,
1: the planning, the, the zone of discretion afforded the planning department is pretty high. And the planning department, the people, the commissioners appointed to those roles are willing to exercise it. And those are both conscious decisions. So the government could allocate less discretion to the planning department. That could be changed. Or the government, the mayors, the city council, could appoint people who are less willing to interfere in neighborhood disputes. But the combination of the two is lethal to building.
0: Now, let's get into, I mean, this is, you are appointed mayor of San Francisco. Every single person on the board of supervisors is a puppet of Keith Raboy. What do you do to fix this?
1: Well, let's start with first principles. One of the reasons why the Bay Area is broken is the board of supervisors actually has more power than the mayor here, which is, Fairly rare in the United States. Typically the mayor has more power than the. It's literally like board.
0: rule by committee.
1: Yeah. And so I think that's what drives some of these subtle nuances to the planning commission and some of the housing issues. The mayor, even with her best intent, cannot actually dictate many of these changes. We don't have like the classic like presidential executive model here in San Francisco. So I think that, that alone would have to change or there'd have to be a massive crisis. Typically governments change when there's a massive crisis, like major economic crisis, major criminal crisis, you know, something like that, where people are willing to do radically new things. And so absent that either a complete fundamental shift in the government structure or a radical economic crisis, I don't think what I don't think anything's going to change. I don't think just whining is going to fix it. Like, I don't think complaining about the affordability of housing in the Bay Area is going to, ch- you know, really change anything. And because of the structural way we elect mayors and the Board of Supervisors, that's not really going to change anything. Also, the way we do proportional representation, it'd be very hard to sweep out the Board of Supervisors. There's, there's so many unique parts of the San Francisco governing structure that the traditional ways politics corrects for these problems isn't going to work here absent a crisis. So I, I think reframing this somehow in a way that nobody's currently doing, that's why I would go with a real radical solution of eliminating zoning and allow people to build by right might be the
0: best fix. Did someone ask for a crisis? Because oh shit, do I have news for you. I've been working on this season of Anatomy of Next for quite a while now. Keith and I recorded our interview you know, almost a year ago. And of course, neither one of us actually thought there'd be a crisis, not like this. COVID-19 has destroyed the lives of thousands of people living in San Francisco. And now with a new influx of homelessness from the region into the city, on top of what was already a nationally infamous problem, we are facing all kinds of insane issues. I'm living a block away from what our local government is terming a temporary solution. A city-sanctioned tent city crowding a bunch of unsheltered men and women with high health risk into a parking lot with tents in the middle of a global pandemic. And of course, it's not temporary. This is not a temporary solution. This is their solution. We refuse to build. We will do anything but build. Our local government would literally rather put citizens of this city in tents than simply let people build housing. At the very end of my interview with Kim I, she hoped a new bill of Scott Wiener's SB 50 would pass at the state level. That would have circumvented our local government and allowed at the very least higher density housing development near critical transit centers. Well, the bill failed. And what do we do with that? How do we fix a problem that the only people who seem to be voting in some sense must want to persist? There are incredible things we can do with technology to improve this city, to rebuild San Francisco, but none of them can solve this problem. To build something incredible that works for everyone, we need local leaders who are excited about growth, industry, and housing. And to get that, to get those people into office, to get that world, Young, smart people who care about this stuff need to start voting. And even to do that in a way that helps, there's a lot of work, a lot of research involved. Because every politician in California says they stand for affordable housing. Those are just political table stakes. But for example, how does the progressive wing of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors actually go about it? The folks in charge of our city, they say they stand for 100% affordable housing. The crisis is so bad, we just need affordable housing and nothing else will do. It sounds great, right? But of course as we have now discussed at length the cost to build is prohibitive and there's no one willing to build housing at a loss which is among many other things designed specifically not to work essentially what the board is offering so we can't build onto our homes we can't build up and we can't build out these are the policies in place but at this point the only policy that should be tolerated is building is now legal that's it that's the whole policy all of it all kinds of building Affordable housing, luxury housing, middle class housing, apartment buildings, homes, whatever you want to build. If it's your land you can put a skyscraper on it because we need homes. What I really think this all comes down to just like pretty much everything else is the story we're telling ourselves about our city. What does the future of San Francisco look like? What is this city a hundred years from now? A couple weeks back I finally watched Vertigo. It's a movie set in San Francisco and filmed by Alfred Hitchcock like over 60 years ago. And do you know what the city looked like then? It looked almost identical to the city we're living in today. I could not tell the difference. Every scene outside on the streets, I mean, these buildings are still standing today. They just looked nicer then. San Francisco is also the capital of the Star Trek Federation. You know, Captain Kirk lives here. The people who run San Francisco believe immigration is sacred, at least that is what they say. But growth is evil. An obvious contradiction. Where are the immigrants going? We have no room for them. We refuse to make room for them, for anybody. The city isn't changing because the people in charge don't want it to. They're still living in 1958. But what year are you living in? What year do you want to be living in? Because we could have a neon Tokyo fantasy downtown. We could have Paris all around it, a literally ancient city that has somehow managed to build townhouses twice as tall as ours. We could lift our four five-story buildings another four to start, garden rooftops, tunnels underground, mobile units that connect and disconnect as the city needs them, with the ebb and flow of our population, and a drop in the cost of living that once again makes this a city that has room for new people, for outcasts and runaways, dreamy poets and musicians, mechanical geniuses, scientists, wanderers, students, families. We've said it before, and we will say it again. San Francisco could be the greatest city in the world. San Francisco should be the greatest city in the world. But you guys have got to start voting. From Founders Fund, I'm Mike Solana, and this is Anatomy of Next. Asylum.